Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burris. Our guest today is Chris Lombardi. She's a freelance journalist and co-editor of Democratic Left Magazine. Today, we're discussing her new book, I Ain't Marching Anymore, Dissenters, Deserters, and Objectors to America's Wars. Welcome to the show, Chris. Hi, thanks a lot. How far back does the tradition of American dissent go? Well, in a sense, it's a country founded on dissent, right? It sent is in disagreement with the powers that be, and you're talking about a revolution that happened. But I think it actually is earlier than that because I can track stuff during the French and Indian War and young young recruits saying, excuse me, I'm not supposed to be doing this or I don't want to do this anymore or my contract is my contract is only five years and they want me to keep serving and that doesn't make any sense. So it, back in 1754 is what I always think of. You you asked you mentioned contracts, and this is one of the things I found really interesting about the early portions of the book was how much of the objections there was certainly a lot of religious dissent at the time, but how many deserters or dissenters were essentially grounding it in contract disputes. How did those work at the time? What did these contracts look like? Because we tend to think more of the military today as just you've joined up and you know now you're just kind of part of this thing as opposed to being a contract arrangement. The contracts were in, – in, in the beginning, they were like three years. It was just basically as long as they thought the battle was going to go or, or you know, the, the campaign was going to go. It evolves. In the very beginning, soldiers could elect their officers also. It was a much more democratic kind of kind of situation. You know, a contract, you're talking about when citizen is like a new concept. Suddenly I'm, I'm a citizen and I have rights, and this is one of the rights I have, is if the, the this institution has entered contract with me and doesn't deliver what it said it would do, I have a right to, to, stop, to stop doing what, what I do. Was there any attempt to force – so Quakers are the most famous dissenters of the revolutionary era. I mean, was did that cause – people to be angry, especially if the time being like, you know, everyone has to do their part to split off from, from Great Britain, uh, where the Quakers seen as, as someone who, who were not doing their part, or was there any attempt to overcome their objections and put them into armies? The Quakers, as you know, have been making trouble since 1700s, 1600s, and they were making trouble. That they were starting to make trouble about slavery at one point when the Second Amendment is being debated. And they realized that the Quakers are already getting these people about that, that they, they were starting to speak out about slavery. Um, so they, they certainly, the relationship of governments to what they call the peace churches was always dynamically strange. But by then, actually, it had evolved that peace churches at least had a right to negotiate that stuff. They could buy out the contract of, of someone um, and they could say, say no, we help alternative service. Now, if you had someone that wasn't a Quaker, they were shot of luck. My book starts, as you know, with a young man who was Lutheran. And he's standing in the middle of a bottle of brandy wine saying, oh my God, God tells me I shouldn't be killing anybody. And he stood there and let, and let the warders fly in his ears because he could, didn't want to do it. And he ended up getting in prison for a while. And eventually became a Quaker after. You know, it, it, there's been a dynamic situation of there's a point where it's, it's almost not dissent. We've got the government saying, okay, you get to do that instead. And then those people go, wait a minute, I still want it to be dissent. Were there non-religious dissenters? Was there philosophical dissent back then? I think there was. We don't know much about, because what 
there were record of is is the peace churches. That's who, who keeps track of this stuff. But I know that there's there are poets who talk about it as, as far back as as the revolution. In those days, I think if you were had this this belief that it was wrong, if you had to be coming from God, the concept of non-religious beliefs was not it was kind of alien. And you mentioned slavery, but could you talk a bit more about the ways that uh, abolitionism um, and anti-slavery movement, and then also there's a lot about treatment of Native Americans factoring into early American descent, like how those played out? It's funny because all the new scholarship about about Native Americans, I feel guilty suddenly. Like All, all my people are bad guys because they're taking, taking the land away from Native Americans. Awareness of that is unfortunately kind of sparse among actual people who are actually helping the government enforce their foreign policy or their, their domestic policy. I talked a little bit about um, Simon Gertie, who was a white Indian, actually, who was a translator for, for the army until he saw what they were doing. And he ended up defecting to Canada. And I talked about William Mipes, who was half Indian, half African-American, who, um, when he was, he was actually enlisted thinking, do I really want to fight the wars of the, wa- of the white man? He did anyway. And he was treated very badly. And he eventually, he did, he did serve out his ta- term and ended up becoming an activist afterward for, on behalf of Native Americans. So I have these, these, these few people that I can point to saying resistance to settler colonialism is part of, of this trend I'm tracking, but it's, it's relatively sparse. I think the slavery thing is a whole nother dynamic. I think that, um, I remember my, my, your uncle of mine read my book and he said, it's about race. It's not all about race, but just figuring out how racist you are is certainly part of the dynamic of anyone thinking about how to be in this country. And it, the abolitionists, there's a whole business of, at some point, they weren't pacifist anymore because they were really into, we have to have a war against these guys. You know, the peace movement kind of fell apart after the Civil War. It was, wasn't respectable anymore to be just pacifist. Because you want to, you know, John Brown died for you, kind of. Um, it's funny. I think about peace organizations. The pacif- the most pacifist ones are kind of the um, canary in the coal mine, saying this is not, this is wrong. And then people who are less pacifist are saying, you know, you're right. And I understand against it, but it's it's hard. We saw, as you mentioned, the Quakers did have special solicitude and, and your story about the Lutheran at the Battle of Brandywine did not receive that solicitude. But did we see in the antebellum period or maybe up to the war, did we see a growth in the the religions, the different kind of belief systems that did receive uh, solicitude for their objections to wars? Or was it just the Quakers who had the sort of special exemption that others weren't given? Well, I mean, it's, I say Quakers, but there's you know, Mennonites, Brethren, the whole group of peace churches out there. And I think that some of them did grow more during the, what they call the first Great, Awa- Great Awakening, which is the period leading up to Civil War. And what I'm thinking now, in terms of the kind of resistance that I'm noticing back then, though, it's less religious than, as you say, the, the contract being violated or being underfed. You know, that the United States, you think we underpaid the better soldiers now, the real underpaid soldiers then. You know, Washington was being complaining about this. Everybody's complaining about this. But the way that, that rank and file soldiers complained about it is they could desert, and they did. What happened to deserters? The people who, say, ran off deserted because of a contract dispute, because they said, you know, I'm not being fed or whatever. Um, what, did they, what did the military do to them, or how were they treated? 
well, it, it, it changed, you know, at one point Washington kind of cracked down, but you know, at some point the deserters, they use lost, just lost up half of your, half of your crew and you could keep going. But by the time of the revolution, a, a lot of high, high profile, um, mutineers were actually, actually executed, actually shot. On the, on the mutineers or the deserters, uh, there, was it possible to have your case? So you talked about the contract aspect uh, where someone could say, you know, I enlisted for two years, or I enlisted for three years um, and then walk away. And this was always a problem, as you pointed out, like this was something that Washington struggled with to keep the army together. And it occurred a lot in the Civil War. Was it possible to, could you walk away? So if you were correct that your three-year enlistment was up and you wanted to leave camp and walk back home, uh, were they going to, were they going to catch you for that too, or where did they let you go? I mean, it's, it's possibly wouldn't. I mean, it, it's you're talking about you know, you don't have huge, huge uh, armies of, of of military police out there to grab you. So it's possible that I mean, what's his name? Jacob Ritter was captured by the British, not not by the Americans, but it was it was not the standard, obviously. And we didn't have appeal appeals processes. You know, you can't now. If someone is wants to get out of the military, they can they can appeal. You can they can connect, negotiate, right? Council council to do the opposite and saying this is not this is not this doesn't make any sense. You don't want them anymore. But those those kind of structures didn't exist back then. Uh, but on that, one of the interesting things that you mentioned in the book is that early draft of the Second Amendment contained a conscientious objectors. Clause mm-hmm. effectively a carve out that was removed. Written by what's his name, Madison. Madison actually wrote that. What What did it say, and and why was it taken out? It was originally, no person religiously scrupulous of bearing arms shall be compelled to render military service in person. That that was the line that got cut out that Madison had included with the rest of the right to bear arms. It was really it was really about people's right to their own autonomy, and it included the right to not not have to fight in your wars. But this is probably the hate, hate of the Quakers is one of the reasons that it got cut out. I imagine, but it's it's fairly broad, though. It just it, it says religious scruples, so it's it's it seems like it w- it could encompass like the Lutheran at Brandywine. Uh, we will never know, I guess. But there are but there are, I mean, in the future where there are other objections under the Free Exercise Clause that people made uh, to service in the military. Of course, there's a lot of conversation in the CO community about how we can possibly take advantage of all this extra religious freedom that the, uh, the Hobby Lobby types have secured and how we can extend that to people who realize they can't be in the military. Hadn't happened yet. So if we go up to the civil war, um, I was interested in, in from both sides of this. Um, so from the Confederate side, I mean, we definitely have border States and people like this, uh, not really getting into the army, but, uh, or actively fighting against the Confederacy. Uh, did the Confederates have conscription? Did they use conscription? And did they, they did, sort of they for- did. Mm-hmm. And then they forced it was people- one of those poor, poor, poor men, you know, poor men gets recruited for, for rich men's needs. Um, did they not care about objections in that context? It, it was, it was not, there wasn't a bunch of possible. There were Quakers in the South who were trying to make this happen. And there's no, I don't know, not a lot that's recorded. And as for, and as for the North, uh, we we have some very interesting resistance to the draft, of course. Yeah, well, there's oh, the whole racism thing there, um, and the draft riots. It's kind of it's it's always 
the Civil War kind of flips the script. I'm looking at a war that you're talking about resistance to. Because people who were fighting it thought of themselves as resistors. They're resisting the slave power. So it's it's more complex. But I, tend, I, I decided at a certain point that I was going to look at the whole context of what resistance meant in those days. And that included the people who were fighting. And that's how you end up with talking about um, 54th, Massachusetts 54th, and the, the, uh, the black soldiers who realized that they were fighting for something much more important than anybody was realizing at that time. Well, this brings up, there's one of the interesting things in the book is how there's, there's kind of very different perspectives represented within this broader anti-war or um, objector movement. And one of them is, and maybe you can explain this, is the difference between people who consider themselves just non-combatants and then what I think we call like absolutist conscientious objectors. I mean, it's, it's not really a book about conscientious objection. It's, I start with conscious objector, but I'm talking about all kinds of resist, resistance beyond that. Absolutist conscientious objectors are people who don't want to do alternative service, don't even want to, don't even walk, work at a hospital because they want to support the structure, the military structure. And, you know, as, as a middle-aged lady, I'm like less, impatient, less patient with those guys now. Um, but, you know, the guy in World War I who was, was going to stay in the jail no matter what happened. And, even, and they treated World War I conscientious objectors very badly. But he, he wanted to stand up for what he believed to an extreme. And then there are others who say, okay, I'll, go, I'll, be, I'll be in jail for a while or I will I'll help you know, build the fort. But therefore, I, I will not, I'm not carrying a weapon. So it's, just, it's a range, always. Do we see a post-Civil War growth in the, the nature of these objectors? Because if you think about the time, as you said, at the beginning, it's religious and con- contractual to some degree. Um, and then the Civil War, uh, and then we have a growth in different types of religions, but we also have a growth in, in just general learning in society, for example, so people can make philosophical objections to this. Uh, and so do we see, see just sort of a divergence of, you know, sort of left-wing anarchists of the late 19th century or different types of uh, different religious sects or other people who just have a philosophical objection? Is that is that kind of a movement that starts gaining ground after the Civil War? Well, after every war, there's there's sort of an end of war movement that evolves after. People don't want that kind of damage anymore. Now, with the Civil War being what it is, kind of singular, but Josephine Shaw Lowell, was one of the big fighters against the Philippine War. So, excuse me, my brother got killed in that a real war, and now you're going to send people to, to fight this one. And there's all of that. And you have that certainly with the Vietnam War and people who are, who are World War II veterans who say, excuse me, my, my war was worth it. This one is not. And there's that whole flip back and forth with that. Um, it's interesting what we say about secular. It's definitely the people that are that are visible in World War One and after are much more secular, it's true. Even if they're even if they have a religious background. What was the relationship between anti war dissent and objection and the early women's rights movement? There's an intersection there for sure. I mean that there's a um women's rights movement you're talking about in the nineteenth century. It's the women's peace party and all that. There's a lot of people who were involved in suffrage efforts early. A lot of them were involved in women's peace movements. We're talking about certainly in the beginning of the 20th century. You've got Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, which was which was founded 
after the Civil War, around in the early 1900s. And they, that they become enough, a big enough group that they were supporting other women's struggles as well, including suffrage. But in the Philippine War, there's also the business of, there's the anti, the anti-imperialist league. And then there's a women's organization, which is not the anti-imperialist league, because it, it, that's all, you know, it's racist and sexist, but they do a lot of, a lot of the heavy lifting. And they actually talk to young soldiers who are trying to speak out and help that happen. You mentioned the Philippines War a couple of times, and, and um, that's a particularly interesting one and often forgotten the Spanish-American War, often forgotten, I think, by Americans for how brutal it was and how imperialistic it was. Uh, but uh, we had on a couple of years ago, Stephen Kinzer, who wrote a book called The True Flag about the dissent in that war in a political environment. Um, did we see, I mean, it was a strangely brutal colonialistic war that many people thought went against America's sort of core values. Um, so did we see a, a pretty big ramp up in dissent, uh, just to that war in particular? The Antipyrrhalist League was a very, was a very odd duck. I talked to Evan Thomas about it. You know, his, his daughter wrote a whole book about, um, cause his, Evan Thomas is descended from, um, one of my characters actually, uh, and he's his daughter wrote a book about about that, but he, he's his book, The War Lover, which is his book about um, about Teddy Roosevelt, who fought it, who, who fought in the Spanish American War, and he he just brushed off the the group as feckless, but it was very odd. It was an odd group. You had Andrew Carnegie, you had these all these rich people who were saying, "Excuse me, this is not not really good for business." And then you had all these social war veterans who were saying, you know, that, that was my war. And then you have the Women's Christian Temperance Union. That That's when you talk about women's groups and the whole dynamic that that, that, that happens. So it was, it was, and they did not have, eventually it had a colored auxiliary, which is really, really kind of very pleasant for us for Ferguson. But they did not engage with the huge number of black soldiers who were, fight, who were fighting. And that became some some other dimension that had happened there. So as as a lobbying group, it wasn't it was some kind of feckless because it, it, they didn't really know what what they were doing in terms of how to how to actually appeal to the government, saying that this doesn't make any sense. Mark Twain was the most visible, obviously, of of the, that league, and the, he, like many people, started out saying, "Yes, we do need to help those." People in in in, in Philippines civilized, but no, realizing that that was not what's happening. Picking up on Mark Twain, was there a um, in in this this early period? So let's say pre World War One, um, was there a robust like anti war literature? You I, I, like the in the book you talk about um, Ambrose Bierce, but was. Was that a thing? And what, what influence did kind of anti-war, particularly fiction, have? Ambrose Bierce actually invented anti-war literature. He invented war literature, actually. And, you know, we have this bizarre dynamic of war literature. People read it because it's moving and fascinating, but then that we keep making more war movies because we love the war so much. And, but... There was not, there was um, the Red Badge of Courage, which is also an anti-war book, but that was not by a veteran. My criteria for who gets me in this book, because otherwise it's everybody, um, is they have to have worn a uniform at some point. 
Forbidden List and stuff with. I mean, Bard Rustin is in there because he was a J. Rossi. <laughs> so it, it, it doesn't have to be much. But uh, Stephen Crane's not in there for that reason. I mean, this whole intense anti-war movement between the wars that includes basically everybody and includes a lot. And before, between between the Civil War and the Philippines, there's there's some. There's a sense that war is a destructive, terrible thing. But there's also a sense of I want my young man, young young man to come, go be a go be a a patriotic human being. So I'll, I'll let that happen. We've talked a bit about race, and one of the striking things was it it seemed like there were so there were a lot of people, and this I think is most of the people that we've been talking about so far who objected to participation in wars on anti-imperialist, pacifist, like. The the problem is the fighting itself grounds, but there also there also was a history of people who objected to conscription enlistment and so on because the military was segregated, or because different racial groups were treated differently within it, and so it seems like their problem was less with war itself and more that they weren't going to be equal participants in it if they were forced into it. Was there conflict between those? Because they seem to be at like working at very different purposes. I think there's, there's more of an alliance going on, actually. NACP was a group of you know, founded by blacks and whites together, some of whom had been veterans, some of whom were not. And you, you mentioned being forced to. There's the whole concept of the resistance saying that if you're going to make me be part of this thing that sustains your country, you better treat me right. You have Winifred Lynn, who was a CO against segregation. He said, I will, I will go fight in the Canadian army, but I'm not going to fight in your army unless you, unless you desegregate it. I mean, I see, I see your point, but I think that when you have people that were standing up against military segregation for the most part, they knew the mixed bag that war was. They weren't saying, we have to do this. You know, W.B. Du Bois decides, okay, this war is happening, therefore I, I want to make sure that black people are treated right. Du Bois, a big peacenik for most of his life. But in 1917, he, 1918, he writes an editorial saying we have to come together and support this war. And therefore, by the way, you have to treat black soldiers, right? That did not happen, but he tried. But he ended up being arrested for running a peace center in the 1950s. That that brings us to the the, the interesting World War One uh, anti war movement in America. Of course, there was a broad anti war movement uh, internationally before the war, led mostly by socialists and, and left wing and Christian nationalists and a bunch of different groups. But from a, a troop side, uh, we did see the sort of inauguration of one a draft uh, in World War One. I. I mean, it wasn't the first draft, but and two, we had things like the Espionage Act and all these kind of actions against people who spoke out against the war. It seemed like that ramped up a significant amount in the World War One era, the sort of persecution of anti-war people, uh, soldiers or otherwise. Um, did you, did we see, was there a true, like, kind of renaissance of dissenters during World War One in America compared to previous, previous wars? I don't know for Renaissance, but it certainly was a place where you had dissent of mankind be counted. People who would not have necessarily been a public dissenter at all, saying, I have to stand up in the middle of this war and do something. And you just saw that. 
Um, and you talk about the Espionage Act and Sedition Act as well. There's a whole business of which publications are going to be are going to be crap clamped down on, and certainly in terms of the war that's going on, what, what's that going to do for the constituency that you're trying to serve? There's the Messenger, a Philip Randolph's thing, cracked down on hugely. Du Bois is, was not because he agreed to affirm the war. When Red Summer's coming up, you've got actual physical casualties from that stuff. Can you tell us about Smedley Butler, who he I'd was? And... <laughs> I was so glad to be able to, to I don't know what I was going to make fit him in because, you know, it's, it's a card book and I already have, it's already a Russian novel, right? Too many characters, too many plots, but life is too many plots, too many characters. Um, I'm so glad Adam Hochschild was my, was my sort of mental mentor because like, wait a minute, if he does that, I can do that. But um, Smedley Butler was, uh, he was Mr. Mr. Military Man his entire life, and he realizes at a certain point around World War One that he's but he's he's been fighting for for the resources, for natural resources. All all the all the wars he fought in were for natural resources. So he retires and he's like, "Nope, I'm not going to do this." And he he wrote several books. He spoke at the Bonus March, which is one of my other favorite things to talk about. Um, and he joined the Socialist Party, actually. But uh, he's very clear-eyed about what had what he had done and what that he needed to, to try to make up for it. And what kind of influence did he have? I mean, was he taken seriously by people because of his military background? Or well, yeah, I mean, he was he was a he was a police commissioner in Philadelphia. As someone who lives in Philadelphia, I think it's I find it amusing that he then left. He could not. Could, could not team Philadelphia. Um, he didn't become president or anything, but he, he was taken seriously. I mean, you know, the fate of people who, who are outside the mainstream politically, and that was that way too. I'm well aware of that. Espe- especially at the time, yes, yeah. <laughs> and if you join the Socialist Party, uh, you might be in prison. Um, now, it seems that when people think about wars, especially ones that America has been involved with, uh, if we go, going up to World War II, well, that's the that's the just war. That's the uh, that's, that's the good the war, war, right? That's the one that needed to be fought. That's the one that you know on both sides. Uh, but but I don't think that that opinion was as broadly held. Uh, maybe for a few reasons. Maybe anti-Semitism, for example. But there were dissenters to World War II, also correct. There were. I mean, mostly I talk about um, Lou Ayers, who was an actor who decided he had been in the movie All Quiet on the Western Front. And he decided that he did not want to get even involved in something that traumatic. Um, but he also wanted to support the war by being a non-combatant. Opposing the war itself was harder and harder once what the consciousness of what was happening with the Nazis. So it was, you know, you had Quakers who refused to to serve, but in those days you could there was the agreement that they could, and there was a you know what do you call it? civilian service program, and you had these little encampments. Where people would do medicine, medical experiments, they would they would build someone else's farm, they would do something alternative. Um, and however, as you said before, then they decided to resist the segregation going on in those camps. And you have the reason that they start, stopped having civil service program camps is that it you basically got a generation of huge of well trained dissenters. National Public Radio was founded by those guys who were in those camps. It was definitely it was a, 
a school for dissent. What role did Hollywood play in this? You mentioned All Quiet on the Western Front, which is, of course, an extremely important novel, but then was turned into this quite important movie. And and there's a there's a world of difference, I think, between people reading fiction that describes war and being actually able to see the brutality of it on a large screen. Um, and so Hollywood, you know, we Hollywood was, of course, in the Red Scare, was bashed for being pro-communist and so on. But like, was was Hollywood largely anti-war? Was it hard to make anti-war films in Hollywood early on? Um, what was what was that like, and what were the kind of major players in this? What I know about World War One, it's, it's World War Two is the area where you've got Hollywood is is in industrial strength, getting as many pro-war movies as they could possibly get made. It's interesting because in general, Hollywood is is more anti-war, but they also are dependent on on the government for cooperation to film anything involving um, of a war. Got to get that plane. Got to get those, and that's it's a strange dynamic, and that was true in in World War World War Two as well. I mean, I have a friend who wrote this biography of Luera's called Hollywood's Conscious Objector, which talks a lot a little bit about how that, that movie was received and how that movie was changed. The run of World War Two, they took they took some stuff out, and they they put a new frame on it, saying you know, then we had then we have to deal with the the new German threat. I think if you go from something like Audie Murphy, uh, who you know became a Hollywood star, star after being the most decorated American soldier in World War II, and the kind of movies that they had there, and then you run forward to say you know Apocalypse Now, um, obviously the interim event there is Vietnam, uh, which maybe is the thing that actually changed most of not just Hollywood's inclination towards war and their attitude towards war, but also Americans more broadly and dissent and their view of dissenters to these kind of wars uh, would be my guess. I think that there's an appeal that war has to performers that it, even veterans who are very anti-war will say, you know, this, this movie is great because it got war right. And that we're, we're all kind of pulled toward that stuff, whether we, whether we want to or not. So I guess that does get to the uh, question about Vietnam, because for most people, and that's one of the things that your book is trying to uh, explain the broader, longer history of this. But for most people, when they think about anti-war dissenters, uh, they think about Vietnam. Um, yeah, they, they think about hippies. They think about hippies and quote unquote draft dodgers and the burning your draft card and all these kind of things, um, which uh, it's it's an interesting time, but it didn't begin that way. I, don't, I mean, I think in, in say 1960, when we were still doing a quote unquote police action in Southeast Asia, uh, we didn't see that level of that. Is there is there any sort of moment that kind of ramped this up or, or individuals that maybe were the people who really pushed this forward during that era? Well, I mean, you, you, you tell me about Jeff, Jeff Charlotte. You can make me talk about Jeff Charlotte, who was an intelligence officer who was there in the early years of the war. And he noticed what was what was going on. And he noticed that this was a police action that was obviously, you know, we were on the side of whoever we wanted to be, but it's not necessarily helping the people on the ground. And people people were dying. People were, were suffering. And he comes back and goes to college in the GI Bill 
and ends up editing a, a magazine called um, Vietnam GI, which is one of the first big GI publications. Ultimately, there were 300 or so of these publications on every military base in the country and in the world. And just putting together you know, what was happening and opposing what was happening. And it was something that I only understood a little bit of in my, in my book, not so much, but that the this GI press was when the, the superiors at, at the army decided to start looking at this stuff and they noticed it's like, oh my goodness. And they quote, and the, the report only quoted the bad stuff, quoted the, you know, kill your officer kind of stuff. And that was not what, not what most of them were about. But they had, they had jokes, they had, they had testimony of what was happening every single time, every stage. They were the ones that first recorded things like National Guard troops who would not act against civilians in Chicago. What we know about what's happening there was from that press. And Jeff Charlotte started that. He was one of the first. And he he saw what was happening early on. And and then, of course, the other I can talk about is all those World War II veterans who noticed really early. What's his name? Um, Sutton Lind, who was who was a a a Quaker, who then was actually a one AO um, objector during during Korea, who was on who was on a train, who was active in support of the civil rights movement, and he saw news of what was happening in Vietnam and said, "Oh, that's what I should be doing now." And he's a giant in all of this. Um, and people like Philip Berrigan and Howard Zinn said. This cannot stand. And they saw they saw early what was going on, and they, they were the first layer that went on there. I think for our, our listeners might not know this too, but the um, arguably the beginning of the modern American libertarian movement, or certainly the modern American young libertarian movement, was the 1969. Uh, Young Americans for Freedom convention when the libertarians got together and organized a draft card burning um, and then got thrown out. And that was kind of the start of the libertarian movement separating off. Um, but can you, one of the, one of the main, like most prominent people in Vietnam descent was John Kerry, who a lot of our listeners probably only remember as the defeated presidential candidate, and maybe they heard about the swift boating of him. But can you tell us what he was doing, particularly the Winter Soldier, what that was? John Ke- John Kerry was um, a young man who, um, as we as we know, was a, was in the military, but he was in the military partly. He was a fairly privileged young man, so he went and was the first support operator during Vietnam. And then he, he joined the Vietnam Veterans Against the War at the moment that was having its most its most intense phase of power. And around right after My Lai, My Lai Massacre, when the trial of, of the main perpetrator was happening, all the people who were in the organization said, excuse me, that happens every day. That's happening all the time in Vietnam. We have to just we have to make this more public. And they had these had these hearings in, in Detroit. They ended in Detroit because they thought, oh, we'll do it in Detroit. That shows we're, we're of the people. Instead of doing it in, in D.C. or New York, we'll do it in Detroit. And people I talked to, they were like, I don't know what's we're spoken when they decided to do that. But they had these, these hearings that happened over three days in February. And 
it got zero press. I mean, it got, you know, local press in, in Detroit. But, you know, the rest of the country was was paying attention to the moonshot. Um, it's 1971, so it's the third moonshot. And John Kerry says oh, says to them at VVW, you know, we should go to D.C. We should, should actually just go and take over all of D.C. And unlike what happened this past set, January, they went to practice democracy. And hundreds of hundreds of Vietnam veterans went to D.C. And Kerry most famously spoke at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, which he was referring to, I think. He said the same things that he that he was saying at Winter Soldier, but to the to the Senate hearing room and to the, to the nation. And then they all at the end of the week they all threw their through their medals at in in the pot. These are people who had earned public purple hearts and all of that and bond stars saying this is this is none of this is worth anything because I know what's happening in Vietnam right now. That was a very powerful moment. And it's moment that Kerry has refuses to talk about it ever since. He also he wrote a book called The New Soldier. Have you seen it? It's a very it's a very earnest book. It's hard it's hard to get a hold of. I just I dug really hard to get it. Um and I did not I don't have a copy of it. But it it's it's very much we're creating, creating a new world. We're doing something important. And these, and they have pictures of all the whole week, the from the hearing room and the whole encampments. He he then went on. I mean, he went on to become a senator, as you know, and then became who he is now. He's now he's now climate envoy. But I I tried to contact him to because I was writing about Winter Soldier. This was for work on violence, and he got officially officially declined. At least, he, at least he, he he knew there was somebody trying. You know, Jane Fonda wouldn't do it either. I'm, I'm not terribly surprised about Jane Fonda. Um, it is interesting though because I, I talked to my parents who, who went to college in the '60s. I mean, in Oklahoma, so they were they were on the East Coast or something. But um, the way that I feel like our country has generally, I mean, there's exceptions, but come to remember Vietnam takes the dissenters and raises them to a much higher level than they were thought of at the time, which was, you know, being absolute traitors to United States and, you know, maybe pseudo communists or something like this, that we now remember Vietnam, you know, as if you, if you weren't, if you weren't against it at the time, or you, you, you'll say, well, I was never quite for the war or something because being against Vietnam is, is super, super cool now, which kind of means that, you know, it was a absolute catastrophe of a war in ways that are hard to even explain, but that it was ultimately good for dissenters, like in 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 the image and and just the idea of being against war is 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 something that you can validly be and you can stand up for and, and receive respect for that. Is it would, would you agree that, with that? You know, during Iraq, that this that the whole country can turn on a dime and say no, anti-war is not is not anything to own to be. Oh yeah, when that the drums of war start by beating, consent gets manufactured every time, every war. That's like the in the you know we had the Vietnam protests, but then that led to kind of a renewed jingoism under Reagan. Um, and so, can you talk about that in particular? Like, it was interesting. I like the discussion about the movie Rambo as somewhat representative of this. It's people have been dissertations about Rambo as as this like masculinist ideal. Um, 
there's a lot of, a lot of rage going on afterward, and people who people who were not in the anti movement felt somehow victimized by it. And there's a whole like I'm grabbing grabbing that energy and, and running with it, which is what Reagan did. So that white nationalists did too. You know, Vietnam veterans who who were who were not anti-war felt completely um, marginalized and insulted by anti-war veterans, and they they took it very seriously. And then some of them used, nurtured their their already existing prejudices and said, "We have to fight for a new white world." And the white nationalist movement that we saw in Oklahoma City was that, that started there. The book, book by Kathleen Below about this. Um, Rambo, it's it's funny because the very first Rambo movie is 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 pretty anti-war, but then it gets metastasized into what it's become since. And I think Rocky Seven or something. Um, you've got create create a whole another another consciousness around that. So when when Reagan the Reagan era, that's just beginning. Bringing us up to the present day, how did like the rise of electronic warfare so you talk a lot about drones and drone operators and also the internet um change the the nature of the anti-war movement well you're talking about the present day we're also talking about a volunteer army we're talking about an entirely different situation even though the majority of people who fought in earlier wars a lot of them were also enlisted anyway um but certainly vietnam most of them had enlisted but we're talking about armed forces have been shipped over to professionalize. I'm looking at this whole trend right now. I'm working on a, as a chapter on conscious objection for a textbook and that Europe and the United States have done this transition to a military caste, to a poverty draft. And we, we rely on those other people that we're hiring to do this now. And that was when you're talking about electronic, the, the drones and that, that drone war, you're asking some of the smartest of the crew we're, we're grabbing, and getting them to do that. And so the descent happens on such an individual level. It's because they're not supported by anybody except groups like I used to work for. Um, that when you're working on the drone program and you realize that what's happening and you don't want to be part of that, you do a very, very individual search for a solution. And that's why you have the whistleblowers that what I'm seeing is wrong and you have to see it. And so you end up with Chelsea Manning. You end up with Billy Winner, though she wasn't, wasn't dissenter about the war. She was dissenter in, in terms of information that was happening during the election. But it's, a, it's just a much more difficult path. That kind of seems to not bode too well for the future of oh, – it doesn't bode too well for the future of anti-war necessarily in this, or dissenters. Um, if, A, as you said, we have this military class and – B, our wars are increasingly fought with drones and other types of removed technology. So, and we we don't have a draft right now. I mean, we 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 still have registration for the draft, but we don't. Uh, most of our American war efforts have been trying to put fewer boots on the ground uh, in these situations, so you can you know t- you know fight a war in Libya uh, with robots and, and precision quote unquote targeting. Uh, so then it's just it's. It's much less about standing up and saying, I refuse to march because they're not marching anywhere. And, as, and I guess rather doing kind of the stuff you mentioned, uh, leaking, d- dissenting to the way we fight the wars uh, and, and going against a thing that you probably voluntarily engaged in as opposed to, say, a draft uh, in the case of Chelsea Manning, for example. 
when you if, if you didn't don't need people that would have not have however it is 1.8 million people in uniform right now so i think that it's it's true that trying to build a movement around that is more is more challenging but refusal to cooperate with the institution is still a refusal to cooperate with the institution and that can make that happen it's not, it's not easy to do though it's really not easy to do i mean i think i think that there's that there is a point to organizing it is a point to organizing it's not a, and i think that the path to anybody that wants to be part of this still is to is to talk to people that are supporting gis that call in who are actually doubting and understanding what's going on or should support daniel hale who's right now still who's in prison now for having leaked about the drone program right this second um, there's a lot of a lot of stuff you can do e- easily and or contact um the uh the Biden administration and say are you sure you want to spend 800 million right now in the pentagon right now this second anything else you're trying to do there's a lot of things you try you can work on it's a, it's as it's as um challenging as it's ever been but it's still possible Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.